Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Amy Hempel, winner of a Hobson Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a USA Fellowship grant by United States Artists, the Ambassador Book Award, the Ray Award for the Short Story, and the Penn Malamud Award for Short Fiction. Her most recent book is Sing to It, published by Scribner, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, and Amy, I want to start by talking about your short, short stories, your flash fiction. Mm -hmm. And I want to do so by highlighting a story in your newest book, Sing to It. And that story is The Second Seating. And Amy, I found when I was reading this book and taking notes in preparation for this interview that oftentimes my notes would be lengthier than the actual story. Uh, And what a wonderful (laughs) thing that is. I found The Second Seating to be a perfect short story, a masterwork of economic storytelling. You're welcome. Where you have all of the information you need to paint a perfect picture about these people right there on one page. Uh, Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about this story, The Second Seating, and then about your instinct, if you can, for shaving a story down to the essential lines? Um, The Second Seating was uh, sparked by something that a, a friend did, a, a couple, long, long, long married, very happy couple, um, and they had started to have builders build a beautiful porch, screened porch, onto their house with a view of mountains and lovely little spots. But shortly after construction began, the, um, the man, the husband, um, got a very bad diagnosis and um, he was not to live much longer, and his wife did not want to go through with it. She wanted to stop construction, but he insisted they continue so that after he was gone, there would be one room in their house that would not have any associations with him, a place she could go, a beautiful spot in their home she could go and, and not be flooded with memories of him being in that same room. And I was so moved by his generosity of spirit. And, 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 and in fact, she did what he wanted. They built the room, and it is a lovely spot for them. And, and so the story that I wrote just has to do with um, friends who survive uh, another friend doing something that friend had wanted them to do uh, along the same lines. Right. Thank you, Amy. And then um, can you talk about a little bit your instinct for shaving these short, short stories down to the very essential lines on the page? Yes, I don't actually shave them down. The the short shorts in this collection are not longer stories that are then um, pared down into a short, short form. Um, I know at the start, that they're going to be a short, short. And the the job, it's a different job. There are, you know, at least half a dozen, probably many more kinds of short shorts that do different things or aim to produce different effects in a reader. And I go there knowing I'm doing that at the start. So it's a different experience than writing a, a more conventional length story. Um, it's 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 not that it starts out 
one way and, and, and I tear it down to something else. It, it, it is always in, from conception, the, mm-hmm. the shorter form. Is that something that you naturally started doing years and years ago, or, or um, is it something it you is. It is. It um, is. I've always loved short shorts, the prose poems, and um, I like blurring those boundaries. And um, it, it, it's hard to explain, but, but you just, you know you have a single moment of a uh, kind of explosion, or you know, like a light bulb going off, and you know, like... Uh, the flashbulb going off in somebody's face, you know, you want to create that, whoa, that just moment of power mm-hmm. um, with an image or language or uh, something. And so uh, I have always, always admired that. What is the essence? How do you get to the essence of something? Or, or an image or a moment of experience that becomes emblematic. Fantastic. Thank you, Amy. Um, in the afterword to your book, you think, Sid Straw for, and I quote, the very thing that led you to finish The Chicane 30 years after you started it. Mm-hmm. Why did this <laughs> wonderful story take 30 years to write, and how did Sid help you complete it? Sid helps me just in terms of having a conversation a conversation at the right moment um, about um, men and about um, expectation and irony, and it just came, it was just the right conversation at the right moment um, that helped frame the story. It took so long um, to write because I recognized it was going to be a story that needed to be framed, bookended, as they say, um, and uh, with, with a particular kind of anecdote, if you will. And I, I certainly had the first one. And I just didn't have the last one. And since I traditionally write knowing the beginning and ending of a story when I start, I couldn't proceed because I didn't yet have the final framing um, anecdote. And then, um, uh, obviously, I did other things during those 30 years, but it stayed with me. I thought, I've got to get this right. I've got to get this right. And... Um, uh, because it, it, it has, uh, some of it comes from experience, real life. And, you know, I needed to, yeah, I needed to get it right. Thank you, Amy. And I, I have questions about this story, but I'm not going to ask them because I want our listeners to read the book and I don't want to spoil the story okay. for anyone. Uh-huh. Um, Amy, uh, in your afterward, you think compassion care, animal rescue, and you um, were involved in a foundation, the Deja Foundation. I'm hoping you can talk about these two organizations and how the work that they do ties into your story, a full-service shelter. Well, I did work. I volunteered for a couple of years in the worst shelter in the Northeast. That's not my assessment. That's a more general assessment, a high-kill shelter, um, and it was excruciating work, as you might expect. Um, Compassion Care was a group, uh, doesn't really exist any longer, but it was a group of about nine or ten of us who, um, though we went and we volunteered to, to care for the dogs. Generally, the, the focus of our volunteer work was to um, go in each day, end of the day, into the evening, and work specifically with and for the dogs who are on the next morning's youth list, that's short for euthanasia mm-hmm. list. And so 
We did. We would do e-blasts to rescue organizations with photos and biographies. We'd write biographies of the, the dogs um, who were scheduled to be put down the next morning. And if we didn't get them out of there, at least, you know, we brought them really good food and took them for real walks and spent time with them and gave them clean bedding. And, you know, I, I mean, very, very difficult. Uh, but that's what compassion care was. And um, there are still people who, who go in and do that work. Um, and um, the, uh, I'm trying to remember the other part of the question that you asked me. Uh, Odeja Foundation was started by one of the volunteers, uh, a couple of volunteers, actually. I was part of it for some time. Um, and it was a separate uh, nonprofit rescue organization in New York. Thank you, Amy. I think I've told you before. My wife Claire and I have three rescue dogs, and Claire, yes, <laughs> yes and Claire. Bless you. Thank you so much, and you. Sorry, coming. No worries. And Claire volunteered for an animal rescue organization in Arizona while we lived there. It's really wonderful work that you've been involved in. We were fostering dogs. Well, and you too. Oh, thank you. We were fostering dogs, and we were so successful mm-hmm. uh, fostering that the dogs are still living in our house. If that. Uh, it tells you anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's ironic that the term for that is foster failure. Right. When, when you, uh, the fosters who, who actually end up keeping the dogs, but it seems like a success to me. <laughs> yeah, it definitely a success there. They're good dogs. All right. Well, listeners, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Amy Hempel. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Amy Hempel, author of Sing to It, a collection of news stories published by Scribner, a division of Simon & Schuster. Amy, alluding to the last question a little, there's a thread throughout this book of people being concerned or being aware that they should be concerned about their priorities when it comes to caring for one thing instead of another caring for shelter animals instead of homeless people, for example, or caring for the elderly and incompetent instead of raising one's own children. Uh, can you speak towards this thread? Well, it's not an either-or question, is it? It's, it's and. Um, one can care for uh, people and animals. <laughs> you know, one can care for many things. Um, and... Uh, I've I've never really understood that notion of well, gee, you're helping animals. Why don't you help some people? You know, while you're at it, um, one does. But um, uh, it's it, it's never seemed to be you know you do one but not not the other. Um, there's room for many concerns. Mm-hmm. I agree. And 
When we speak of homes and shelters, I, of course, am alluding to some of the places we've already talked about um, in the full-service shelter and also to the maternity home in the story Cloudland. Um, This Mm -hmm. story is devastating. Chuck Polinick was thinking about using the source material and then found there to be, quote, nothing funny about it, unquote, so he suggested Mm -hmm. it to you, um, which, if you know Chuck's work, is really quite a statement. Uh, can you tell us about the real events that inspired this story, Cloud Man? Yes. Um, a Canadian journalist named Betty Cahill um, published a book long, a long time ago about a, bit, a little known and, and horrific um, mass murder situation in Nova Scotia at a maternity home, ironically called the Ideal Maternity Home, that was um, extraordinarily deceptive uh, about adoptions going on. Um, young women would have babies there, bring the babies there, and uh, thinking, paying money, and thinking that these babies were going to be adopted by good families, good parents, and often the babies were left to languish and die um, and, and were buried um, on the property and near the property. And it's just a hideous, hideous story. Not that well known. And so I would never have known about it if not for Chuck. And if you know his amazing work, you know, he he, he mixes horror and humor uh, like nobody else. Um, but there, as he said, there was no humor to be found here. And um, I just tried to, once I read Betty Cahill's book that, that Chuck gave me, um, and found out more. Um, I just tried to imagine um, my way into um, a, a variation on that experience. So I, I don't do historical fiction. I mean, there there would be many ways to that story. Um, uh, so since I don't do historical fiction, I I, I put my own spin on it. Mm-hmm. And one of the telling quotes that comes early on in this story is, parents are cautioned against becoming their children's friends. Can you talk about this quote and its importance to this story? Um, well, uh, um, parents are often told that you're, you're not, your job is not to be your child's best friend. You're the parent. You know, you have... Uh, responsibilities, and you have to make um, unpopular decisions for your child. Um, but it's used in the context of that long story or novella um, because the, the uh, narrator is um, a woman who who says, "Well, they don't tell teachers not to be, you know, the student's friend." And so the the narrator is a, a former teacher who who crossed the line. Um, you know, hanging out with students, being too much like them, and joining in activities she shouldn't have, and um, and that is the that is what turns her life uh, in a new direction, mm. very different direction. Yes, and there are two more threads that weave through this collection that I want to bring up now. Um, one is of extramarital affairs. Uh, and I stay with Sid and Mrs. Greed. And one is the image of apples and Cloudland and Mrs. Greed. And finding these threads and some of the others that we have mentioned already really give this collection weight and make it feel like a singular, cohesive work. Is it important to you to have these 
images and threads weaving through your separate stories when you present them in a collection, or does it just occur? What's interesting to me is that um, is that I didn't set out to um, to fashion these connections um, and promote these intersections. Um, uh, what's really interesting is that you know, you just write what you write, and then looking back, you discover these things in common. Um, oh, I guess I was still thinking about apples. Oh, I guess I was still thinking about um, uh, uh, betrayal. Um, guess I was still thinking about, you know, X and Y. That, to me, is um, a fascinating discovery, and I know many writers uh, uh, fiction who, who who find that, that same thing it, it's like oh your subconscious is acting out <laughs> and then you discover what was on your mind up the whole time and that that i trust that i i don't know I'm, i suppose there are many writers who who set out with the determination to make these uh connections uh i i have never set out to do it uh i have just found them after the fact of the writing and um it's just an interesting thing that if you're open to following a story where it, it seems to want to go um, without forcing it to go in another direction, it's something that can result. Thank you, Amy. Um, finally, I want to ask you about our friend Jill McCorkle. Uh, you came to Quailridge Books uh, for your event there with Jill, and I saw you in Raleigh when I was a student of Jill's back in 2007. Uh, and I've said this in a podcast before, but Jill has become one of my favorite people over the years. And Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you, Amy uh, Hempel, thank her in your afterward. Um, can you tell us a little about how you know Jill, since many of our listeners are here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and how she has helped you uh, over the years. Oh, she's the most wonderful person and wonderful writer, um, uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily generous and um, um, funny, and um, she has such insight into people. I don't even say characters, because the characters in her books never seem like made-up characters. They, they seem like real people. And... Um, We've had the experience of getting to co-teach workshops at Bennington College in their uh, MFA program. And so I've learned a great deal from her, uh, listening to her in, in, in an actual graduate workshop many, many, many times. So um, one of the strengths in, in her work is always is voice, uh, as well as place, but voice. Um, and um, I've, I feel I've learned a great deal about dialogue and and uh, and more from not just from reading her work but from just spending time with her excellent thank you amy hopefully jill listens and hears all these wonderful things we have to say about her um <laughs> finally amy would you like to read us a story from your new collection sure um i can read the title story which is one of the 10 short shorts in this collection of 15 mm-hmm. stories. This <clears throat> uh, is sing to it. At the end, he said, no metaphors, nothing is like anything else, except he said to me before he said that, make your hands a hammock for me. So there was one. He said, not even the rain, he quoted the poet, 
Not even the rain has such small hands. So there was another. At the end, I wanted to comfort him. But what I said was, sing to it. The Arab proverb, when danger approaches, sing to it. Except I said to him before I said that, no metaphors. No one is like anyone else. And he said, please. So at the end, I made my hands a hammock for him. My arms, the trees. Thank you, Amy. That was wonderful. And this is a wonderful collection. I hope that all of you listeners out there will come to Quail Ridge Books and purchase it and read it and enjoy it like I have. I have been speaking with Amy Hempel, author of Sing To It, New Stories, published by Scribner, a division of Simon and Schuster. Amy, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Amy Hempel for joining me. Signed copies of Seeing to It, New Stories, can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books or online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code Bookend, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to receive three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookend.